Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are watching from or listening, welcome to PTSD 911 Presents. This is a podcast for first responders and those who support first responders. Thank you so much for joining us today. On this show, we talk about mental health and wellness for first responders. Our goal is to have deep conversations that inspire and motivate you to take care of yourself and to take care of your peers when it comes to your mental health. My name is Conrad Weaver. I'm so glad you stopped by to to watch or to listen to the show. First, I want to say I'm not a first responder, but I support first responders and I'm excited to be working on this show as well as a documentary called PTSD 911. And you can please, if you haven't seen the trailer, please watch the trailer on our YouTube channel or on our website. Hey, if you're watching on YouTube right now, I encourage you to log in and let us know in the comments where you're from and if you're a first responder or not. And while this show is pre-recorded, we do monitor and engage on the chat, so we'd love to connect. And if you haven't subscribed, hit that subscribe button and would really like to know what you think about the show and how we could improve it and, and how we can better serve you, the first responder community. So also please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you're listening there or on whatever podcast platform you're listening. So we want to welcome you. Bev Perez is a retired police officer, a motivational speaker, CEO and founder of Shield Us. This is a nonprofit organization focused on breaking the stigma of mental health among first responders, offering wellness retreats, peer support training and mindfulness groups. Bev served with the Prince George's County Police Department in Maryland when she had a life-changing traumatic experience that ended her career. Since then, she has dedicated her life to sharing her story of overcoming post-traumatic stress, anxiety, and depression. Today, Bev shares her story with us, and just to let you know that her story contains information that could be traumatic for some listeners or some viewers, so please, discretion is advised. You know, if you or someone you know is struggling with depression and or suicide, please know that you're not alone and please reach out for help. And now here's my conversation with Bev Perez. Well, Bev, welcome to PTSD 911 Presents. So glad to have you on the program today. Thank you, Conrad. Thank you for having me. So uh, how are things in Florida right now? Things are great. They're busy. Busy, busy, but it's a good kind of busy. Yeah. Well, you, uh, you and I used to live closer to each other. You come from Maryland. So tell us a little bit about your story and uh, let's start with who are you and what do you do? Okay. First, uh, again, thank you, Conrad, for having me. Yes, I was in Maryland. However, now I am here in Pompano Beach, Florida. Currently, I am the CEO and founder of Shield Us. It is a nonprofit catered to first responders where we break the stigma and end the suicide epidemic by offering wellness retreats, peer support. I facilitate groups that are coping skills, suicide awareness and prevention, and anything mental health related to provide support for us. SHIELDA stands for self-help in every law enforcement department. However, it is for all first responders. So how did you get in, involved in that side of things with uh, first responders? Good question. Very, uh, it's going to be a long-winded answer, but <laughs> it started, it all started when, no, um, I did 10 years with the Prince George County Police Department. And during that time, I was involved in an incident that was very traumatic for me. And I noticed a gap in services for first responders, for police officers, as it pertains to our mental health. However, I had to do the work first. So what that means is I had to be vulnerable. I had to take part in some holistic practices to heal. Just can't pour out of an empty cup. And as I was doing that, I tried to armor myself to be strong enough to handle and help other individuals. And so that's what I came up with the idea of starting this nonprofit other first responders. Mm -hmm. So it comes really out of your own pain and your own experience. Correct. Yes. Do you think, I know for, on my previous film project, I work with a lot of people in, 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 in addiction, you know, kind of caught up in addiction and, and in the recovery community, they often say that the only people that can help people in recovery are other people in recovery. 
Is that Correct. kind of similar to what you experience with first responders and post-traumatic stress? Yes, absolutely. When we talk about recovery, we're talking about not only substance abuse disorder, but also mental health and the recovery of that, what that looks like. And you want to connect with someone who understands that same kind of walk. And so that is something that I offer. And yes. Mm -hmm. Would you mind just kind of giving us the cliff notes of your story? Sure. Uh, so during my time as a police officer, I had one rule and I always say that. And my one rule was besides going home and making sure my guys and gals make it home is I would not date another police officer. And, you know, that was just a rule of mine for various reasons. However, during my time, I did just that. I fell in love with another police officer. We had been together for three years. His name is Jakai. And at the time, we were practically living together. He had been picked up by our narcotics unit, so he was working undercover. And on March 13 of 2016, I had a special assignment at our headquarters. At this time, I'm a uniformed officer with a marked cruiser. And we woke up that morning, we were together, and he said, you know, um, he was going to go work an overtime assignment and I had to go to headquarters for an assignment that I had. So he said, I'll pick up some food and drop it off for you on my way to my assignment. I said, sure, no problem. So I was going on about my day. And as I'm driving to headquarters, I turn the radio on for the area that I'm working. When I hear this commotion, I can hear a detective screaming for help, saying that he's getting fired at. There's an active shooter that is actively shooting at our headquarters. And our headquarters, it houses our chief, command staff, detectives, specialty units, some civilians. It's a really busy building. So, of course, my first thing is I'm going towards the fight. But it was also crap. Like, where's Jakai? Because I knew that he was coming to drop off some food for me. And all I kept thinking was he's probably there sitting duck in the parking lot with this food not knowing that there's an active shooter right there because he's an unmarked cruiser. He doesn't have a dispatch in there. He's undercover. So I just recall driving with one hand and I had him on speakerphone in the other hand and I'm trying to keep as calm as I can possibly keep myself and telling him, babe, just get out of the area. Please, they're shooting. Just get out of the area. He can hear the feedback from the radio. He's like, wait, what's happening? What's happening? I'm like, there's an active shooter. Just please, just, just leave. And what ended up happening is as I'm turning into the area where headquarters is, I heard about, I want to say like 13 shots. And those were Jakai's shots. He confronted the suspect. He fired at the suspect, the 13 shots. One of the rounds hit the suspect. It went through his belly, putting him down. And by the time I got there, I had my windows down and I heard Jakai yelling police. And I saw him laying on the ground. What ended up happening is Jakai confronted the suspect. And when he did that, it allowed officers to come out of headquarters, one of which saw Jakai and mistook him for a suspect and shot at him. Because he was undercover, but, was in plain clothes. and Correct. Mm -hmm. So he and shot had a at weapon, Jakai. And had a weapon in his hand too, right? And had yeah. a weapon in his hand. Yeah. Um, so... By the time I got there and Jakai was trying to identify himself, but at this point he'd already been shot. Mm -hmm. And that's when I got to him. And, you know, Conrad, when I, I have the dash cam video, I've seen it. And when I look at that video, I still to this day, I guess it's just muscle memory. It's just training. I don't know how I responded the way that I did, but I know that I did. Right. So mm -hmm. the one thing that we're trained to know, I had a crown Vic. And we know that the hood of a Crown Vic houses the most metal. So like that's where you want to, that's where you would want to use as a shield. Mm -hmm. Hence the name of my nonprofit as well. So I remember backing up my cruiser in a 45 degree angle to shield Jakai as much as I can. And then I remember getting out of the driver's seat with my gun out and I'm kind of duck walking back and I threw my body over him, shielding him with my body. And when I pointed my weapon out to see who was shooting at him and at us, I saw police officers. At that moment, I knew something horrible had just happened. I holstered my weapon and I'm holding Jakai in my arm. I'm on my hands and knees and I'm holding him. And he's looking at me. He's still trying to identify himself. He's yelling police. And at that moment, I just looked at him 
And I was like, baby, I got you. Like, I got you. And he just looked at me and he stopped yelling police. He stopped identifying himself. And he just looked at me and then he closed his eyes. And at that moment, I put his body in my cruiser. We put him in the backseat of a cruiser, my cruiser. And my homeboy went in the backseat with him. And I drove to what felt like the longest drive ever to the nearest hospital, which was PGH, Prince George's Hospital. We got him to the hospital. However, Ja'Kai died out there in my arms because I felt him. But I was still hopeful. So I drove him to the hospital and the chief came and said, sorry, Mary, Ja'Kai's gone. Hmm. The officer that was in the back seat did chest compressions on Ja'Kai the entire time. He kept me grounded in that drive. And he really, you know, he, we, we knew, but we were, we were going to keep trying. However, when we got to the hospital, like I said, he was already gone. I felt him go when he, when we were outside on the ground. Hmm. This is still really raw for you, isn't it? 2016. Yes. And I know the more I tell it, the less power I give it. However, it's always going to hurt. You know, it's always going to hurt. And after that incident, in September of 2016, I had a suicide attempt. And my goal was to, you know, just living with survivor's guilt, living with depression, living with the sadness, living without him was just too much to bear at the moment. So that was what I saw as an only option at the time. So your life kind of spun out of control after that? Absolutely. It spun out of control for so many reasons, mainly just living through something so traumatic like that. It's almost unrealistic. So you wake up the next day and it's this immense, like really just feeling like this empty feeling and wanting to believe that that wasn't a real thing. But you wake up, you're not in your home. And you're surrounded by family, and you're surrounded by people, and you know that that thing, that horrible thing that you thought wasn't real, actually was real. Mm. And all these people are here bringing, you know how it is, bringing food or stopping by. And it was mm. just, and you're just kind of in this daze, like, wait, what? Like, no. You know, because it's really like a movie thing. So you don't believe stuff like that happens in real life. And I just kept like, but where is he? Where is Ja'Kai? Like, when is he coming home? Like, no. And it was this almost like outer body experience. And at the time, piecing that together, along with knowing what was going to come afterwards, I knew that things were going to get a lot more difficult for me. And knowing that he was my one support system, I guess you could say, you know, I have family, I have friends, of course. Ja'Kai was my number one fan. And to know that I was going to have to go through just the toughest part of my life without him. It was just, I didn't want, I, I didn't want to, like, I didn't want to accept that. So I was like, no, I'm not going to do this without him. Mm. It just, yeah, it was a lot of harsh realities. Unfortunately, I didn't get the support that I, that I would have hoped for mm. by my department, which I don't take it personal. However, I think it's a lack of compassion, a lack of education, and changes need to be made, which is another reason why I do what I do. Things were not handled properly. A lot of politics and checking off boxes for images. However, I'm a whole human. You don't treat people like that. It's mm -hmm. one of the reasons why I do what I do. Mm -hmm. So, so how long after that was it before you left the department? Right after that incident, I never went back to police work. They actually offered me, I want to say less than a month after the incident. I can't really recall exactly how, how far away, but they asked me if I wanted to work the desk, like do desk duty. You know, in my mind, I was going right back to police work. I mean, what else would I, was I going to do? You know, it's almost like this one dimensional mindset where you see that you're a police officer and that's all I know. I don't know anything else, you know? So I was like, well, yeah, I'm going back to police work. However, when I went to the station and they were asking me, hey, do you want to work desk duty? That's when I started to feel these things that I didn't understand. 
seeing the cruisers just and this was not the station where the shooting happened. This was my station where where I work at. Right. Because I was working a special assignment at headquarters. But where I work at, you know, nothing happened there. However, when I got there, Conrad, just seeing the cruisers, Mm -hmm. seeing officers in uniform, hearing the feedback of dispatch radios, I started to shake and then I started to throw up. So much so that there was something they wanted me to sign and I couldn't even get, they were like, just, just go, you can't be here. Seeing all that stuff, it stimulated something in my mind. And I went right back to that event, right back to that nightmare. And I I couldn't function. And I had no idea what was happening to me. You know, I had read about PTSD and trauma and flashbacks, but I was like, man, that stuff, you know, that's all in your head. That's not real. Mm -hmm. And And then I actually, actually lived it. And after that moment, I knew that, I had to do something, obviously get some help and the department, they actually had me evaluated by two or three doctors that they chose to decide whether I was still fit for duty or not mentally. Mm -hmm. And they determined that I was not, I was not, I was unfit for duty, that I couldn't do the job anymore. And I got diagnosed for the first time ever in my life, uh, PTSD, severe depression, anxiety, uh, panic attacks, they prescribed all these pills, just the whole whirlwind of things. I wonder why the first, and I hear that a lot that, you know, you get this, you get this, uh, diagnosis and the first thing they go to is pills. It's like, why? I mean, I understand some of it, you know, yeah, you need to get, have some pills to get you to a place where you can work on yourself. But why is that always the first thing? I think it's the easiest thing, right? Hmm. Uh, I think it's just kind of, I mean, and I don't want to say that that's the case, you know, because the individuals that prescribe the pills, they go through a series of schoolings and things that they have to go through. There's science, Hmm. and I'm sure there's benefits and meds. And sure, I'm sure there is for, Hmm. you know, no one, there's no one way to healing for everybody. Yep. However, if you really... Yeah, can you imagine if everybody took the time to actually try to provide holistic practices and dedicate just a listening ear and offered coping skills like meditation and mindfulness? Can you imagine if they did that with everybody? I mean, it, it yes, I think that that is the ideal way. However, maybe they see it as too much. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. But that that was the go to. Mm-hmm. And it was very much like that. I took the pills for about the first couple of months and I very much dis- dislike how I felt. Mm-hmm. I was completely out of control of my body. I think I was worse than what I was. I was already kind of in this numb state where I didn't want to move. I didn't want to eat. I didn't want to do anything. Now with all these different layers of pills, I was just literally just there. Like I would just sit there. Like I was nothing. Just existing, just existing. And I was like, mm-hmm. no, I don't want to not be in control of my body. Like, I, I want to feel the emotions. I want to go through the waves. It has to happen. Because mm-hmm. isn't so, that kind of what some of the pills do is they just kind of, and I had someone tell me one time, you know, here you can, that in, in their story, I was prescribed some pills because it'll kind of make you not feel. Right. And that's the reality, right? A lot of the things that we do is because we don't want to feel. Mm-hmm. Right. A lot of the things that first responders are still doing mm-hmm. is because they don't want to feel. And that's the self-medicating. That's the risky behaviors because they don't want to feel. However, if you just sit sober with yourself, with some support potentially and feel the feels, it's going to be the most uncomfortable thing and the most necessary and beautiful thing as well. Mm-hmm. It's a necessary evil. You have to feel the feels for humans. Mm-hmm. We have to. So from the pills, where'd you go from there? From the pills, what I ended up doing is I actually uh, got really, really depressed and decided I didn't want to be in America. And I went to El Salvador, which is where my parents are from. Mm. And I went there, no intention of living there, but just to get away. And I remember one of my cousins saying to me, hey, let's take surf lessons. It's like 20 bucks. And I was like, whatever, I did it. And the way I the way I explain it is when I rode that wave for the first time, it's like I saw life in color again. Hmm. And at that moment, I knew that there was healing in water. I didn't know what, but I knew that I would forever be surfing. I will forever be swimming in the water to save my life. Then I started thinking, I want to live in El Salvador. But I was like, I want to make American dollars so that I can live like a queen over here. 
So I came back stateside, came back to Maryland, and I noticed I need to be around the water. And at that moment, I drove 16 hours to Florida. I stopped maybe three times, uh, twice to use the restroom, once to eat. I gassed up, but I just drove straight. I didn't have any friends, family, had nowhere to work. Uh, Thankfully, a family relative, uh, they let me stay at their place. And I kind of just figured it out from there. And that's how I got to Florida. I struggled. I couldn't find work. I struggled to find food at points. It was a lot when I got here, but -hmm. I had to figure it out. And I had a choice. I could have chose to go one path of life Mm -hmm. or I could have chosen to go another path. And I had to take the challenging one versus the easy one. Because I knew that what happened to me didn't happen for me to choose this easy way out. Jakai did not go for me to do this. I did not go through that to do this. Mm -hmm. I know in speaking with other people who have experienced trauma, sometimes it's easier to just lock yourself in a room and avoid everything than to go out and try to remake your life. What gave you that drive, that motivation to remake your life? I think a lot of it comes from, a lot of it comes from self, but you also are supported. When we're going through these dark moments, it's so easy to say, nobody's here for me. Nobody gets it. Nobody understands. However, when we really, really take a look back, I was supported. I had friends telling me, hey, go do this, go do that. And I had a friend tell me to go to the Center for Mind Body Medicine. They were having, it's like a seven-day group. They run groups. And it's all holistic practices. And I was told to go to this. And that changed my life. I had never been in group therapy. You know, you sit in a group and you share your story. and You have the option to say pass or share. I was sitting there with my arms crossed and I was like, pass, pass. Like, I'm not sharing. Why would I tell these ladies or these people my business? Like, I don't know who they are and they don't know. They don't need to know my stuff. And the power of vulnerability. I remember calling my sister and telling her how this was bogus and meditation. It's hippy dippy. I'm not doing this. And she said, Well, if you're not going to go there and give it your all, I suggest you leave because you're taking away from somebody who could be there and will actually utilize that. Mm. She was like, I suggest you either give your 100% or stop going. And so the next day I decided to share. And the power that I felt in sharing, I was convinced that there is absolute healing in being vulnerable. There's actual strength in crying in front of people and telling about your shameful, hurtful thing. So the first thing that got me to choose the direction that I chose was myself. I I had to get to a place where I was like, what are you going to do, Bev? Because I'm tired of waking up every day wanting to die. I was waking up every day just suicidal, just wanted to die. I just wanted to die. And it's exhausting to hate yourself. Mm. It's so exhausting to wake up every day with this kind of like, you know, for lack of a better term, it's just almost like a pity party for self. You wake up and you're just like, why did I wake up? What do I have to, I don't want to be here. Uh, You know, like that, that gets really exhausting. So I had to say, well, do something then. What are you going to do? And that's when I started to do the work. But I want to say as well that I was supported. There was family, there was friends, there was people looking out for me, calling, texting. I was not alone. Mm -hmm. I felt alone. Mm -hmm. I wasn't. How much do you think of, you know, looking back as on your journey, how much of it was you doing the work versus uh, those who supported you, encouraging you to do the work? What was that? What was that relationship like? Did you was it more of you doing the work, or was it more of people, you know, kind of pushing you out there? You understand what I'm I think saying? It, yeah, definitely. I think it's fifty fifty for me. Mm-hmm could be more on one end or the other. I think it's 50-50. I think it it varies, right? I think right after the incident, it was my entire family. Like it was it was like 90-10, if that. It was all of them. I remember having people around me all the time. And looking back at it now, the reason why I had people around me all the time after the shooting is because 
they had set up a suicide watch to have people around me at all times. And I was like, don't these people work? Yeah, but I, at the time I didn't think about it. But it was like my family, my cousins, my aunties, friends, peers, whoever, it was always somebody with me, always another human. So for the first couple of months, years, 90-10. I wasn't eating. I wasn't bathing. I wasn't doing anything. If I wasn't getting forced to go get my, my nails done or to take a shower or to eat, I wouldn't do it. Then when it got to the, the middle part of this journey, I started to put in some work, right? So now we're looking at 50-50. They're still there, but Bev, you, I, can walk you to the, I can walk you to the well, but I can't make you drink the water, right? Mm-hmm. So I started to drink the water. Now where I'm at, it's me. I got to keep this going. It's me. My family is there, of course, but it's all Bev. Bev has to, because I have self-love, self-worth, and I know my purpose now. I know my passion. Mm -hmm. So now it's me. How much did the department, what did they do for you or not in, in, in the following months? Yes. So following the incident, the department denied my medical pension despite getting evaluated by their doctors who deemed me unfit for duty due to an on-the-job injury. They denied my medical pension. I didn't understand why. I also wanted to die at the time. So I also took it as punishment for not being able to save the one life I would think that I would have to save. However, I got an attorney, support of my family. Again, they were like, Beth, no, you have to fight this. So I went out, I did the work, I got an attorney. And he fought for me. He fought a lot. We appealed it. We had to go through a trial board. Even the moderator that was at the trial board said she deserves her entire pension. I don't even know why she had to, like, I don't even know why she's going through this process. Like, why are you all even fighting her for it? And that was a stack of papers. We sent it up. It got denied again. Mm -hmm. Uh, The attorney finally sent me an email saying, hey, Bev, just stop fighting. Just let it go. And I was shocked. And I was like, we've been fighting for this for years and no he's like just stop and something told me this is bigger than me this is i don't know what it is this is bigger than me it's it's money it's politics it's stuff that one person can't go up against right so they denied my medical pension they also held a you know those award ceremonies for officers acts of valor Mm. You get like the highest medal, whatever it, it may be. I wasn't mentioned. Uh, I wasn't mm. invited. I wasn't. I was erased from the entire incident. And I always think about it. You know, I, I died out there with him. Mm. I definitely did. And they made sure I did not exist. And I don't know why. And at the time, you know, Conrad, I needed that. I needed that pat on the back. I needed the accolades. I needed the, hey, man, Bev, you are a hero. You you did everything you could. You know, I needed that. I needed the I needed the money. I needed that at the time. You know, and I, I didn't get any of it for whatever reasons, which till this day I'm still trying to figure out. You mentioned something earlier that I want to kind of get into. So many people in law enforcement and first responder communities as a whole put all their eggs in that one basket. And then when they retire or when something happens, like what happened to you, they're lost. And they're, because their whole identity is wrapped up in that thing that they do. How can that, how can we change that mentality? That my, How did it change with you? That, hey, you know, now you're no longer an officer, but you have another mission, another purpose, another thing that is, has become your passion. How do you change? How do you make that change? It's such a personal change. It's such a personal change. And unfortunately, for many, you're going to have to fall real hard to realize the importance of your actual life. Mm. For me, the reality kind of came when you you joined the academy. I was 21 when I joined the academy. I was 22 when I graduated. And they tell you, oh, you know, you're vested in five years. So already in my 21-year-old mind, I'm thinking I have to do five years. I would not think of anything else for five years. And then they tell you, oh, also, you're, you get to retire in 20. So now in my 22-year-old mind, because I graduated the academy at 22, I'm thinking, okay, so I have to be the police for, until I'm 42. 
I'm going to be the police until I'm 42. And you could not get me out of that. Nothing in the world would get me out of that. Even after the incident, I was still willing to go back and finish because I had to because retirement. Mm -hmm. I need my retirement money, right? The golden cuffs, Mm -hmm. right? And then your mindset is stuck like I have to do this. I already dedicated 10 years of my life. I couldn't, I, I, I put my, my blood, sweat, and tears into this department. I put all my 20s into this department. How could I not be a police anymore? I don't know anything else. We get into this mindset. It's almost like, you know, and I, I don't use this lightly, but it's almost like brainwashing. Mm. Like, really? Mm. And you get into this mindset, and then you got the golden cuffs where you think you have to make it to the 20 years. I'm like, you're not even going to make it for the next 20 minutes because you're dealing with depression and you're, you're addicted to X, Y, Z. Like, you're dying. But we're so stuck on this mindset and the money. Mm. The money will make you stay, right? It's not the money that we're making doing it. A lot of us don't make that much. Some of Mm. us do, depending on where you're working. However, that pension, Mm. when you think about the money, oh, okay. Yep, I'm not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. Some of us actually do like it as well. Some of us do like it. We like the culture. We like, you know, the, the work, the job. And we're getting treated proper. So it's really, it's different for each individual However, what I will say is that there's absolutely a thousand percent, as you know, life beyond being the police. Some of us get that. I've dealt with, you know, I've met a lot of first responders that get that. They're like, oh, this isn't everything for me, Bev. Like, I got a side business. Like, I'm doing X, Y, Z. However, we also have those other first responders that don't see past it. And we have to see that we're more than one dimensional. You are three dimensional. You're a whole human. You can do literally anything you want to do. I didn't. I wasn't born knowing how to be a police officer, but I learned all the skills possible to be the police officer that I was. I learned how to shoot. I learned the Aspaton. I learned the taser. I learned X, Y, Z, all that stuff. Just like I was able to learn how to become this police officer for 10 years, I can learn how to become whatever else I want to be. But we have to get in that mindset. And you also have to accept the fact that you're going to be uncomfortable because you're change. It's a shift. Change is uncomfortable. You're going to have to deal with things that you don't like. I had a standard of living when I was a police officer. I had a certain amount of money I was making to then practically being homeless in Florida. Uncomfortable. However, I had to go through that to get to where I'm at. And I tell the guys and the gals, you know, I tell them, hey, you might have to, you know, downsize on some of your finances because if you're going to leave, your money's going to change. Don't get stuck. You know, we get stuck on the money part. We get stuck on the benefits. We get stuck on, we we get stuck on so many things. It's just a mindset. So I think what ended up actually, obviously, getting me out of it because I would still be there. It was the incident. Mm-hmm. I would still be there in Conrad. I was not happy. Mm-hmm. I was. I had been fantasizing with suicide when I was a police officer. I would think about it when I would get off of work and I would go home. I would look at the gun and said, I'm going to wrap my mouth around this gun today. I'm not going back tomorrow. I'm tired. Mm. Screw this. I ain't going back. And then I would go back to work and I would have gave it my full 20 years just like that. Miserable. Mm. Was it, was it miserable because of the cumulative things that have happened to you that you experienced or was it just, you just didn't like the the work or, or the job? I think you, you know, the reality is we get called out on people's worst days. Mm-hmm. You see the worst in humanity. That's exhausting. And you do that every day, you don't right? Realize. <laughs> every day, every day, you know, and like you don't realize that it's taking a toll on you until you eventually start to say things like, I hate people. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, people are so annoying. You know, just to say that statement, I hate people and have that mentality when I'm waking up, putting on my uniform, like, oh, I hate people and then have to go out there and people mm-hmm. like that's not fair to the people. Mm-hmm. It's not fair to me, but I'm already establishing this kind of like, little hate in my heart for humanity because I'm seeing the worst of it. Not to mention when we get called out, whether you called me or not, you don't like me because I'm wearing a uniform. Mm-hmm. Like I can't win, you know? So it's like, then you start to hate yourself and then you start to get exhausted. And then you're like, Oh, I just need, uh, I just can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you go to risky behaviors or whatever that may be. So mm-hmm. yeah, unfortunately that's the walk because we do see the worst in humanity. However, there's hope for humanity yet. Once you start seeing people as people and talking to them as such, but it's a journey. It is, it is a journey mm-hmm. for sure. So where does that journey begin? So let's talk to that officer, that firefighter, that other first responder who's where you were, you know, tired of people, tired of the work, tired, you know, ready to 
you know, end it all. Okay, where do they begin to make that journey to, to wellness? It's a reset button, but they got to want it. I cannot want it more than you. I can't and I won't because it's a personal journey, but it is a reset button. And every human in the world should have that reset button, whether that is a therapist, that is a retreat, that is a rehab, that is a holistic approach, get a shaman, get some faith, go to church, join a group, a grief group, help, help. You have to be able to, one, recognize that you need it and be vulnerable with yourself. It's not weak. It's strength in that. Recognize that you need the help. Two, ask for help. And also, because there's going to be challenges, right? We ask for help and we don't get it once. We're like, you know what? Never mind. That's why I don't ask. Never mind. Never mind. Right? No, keep, keep asking. Advocate for yourself. We don't have to go through our command staffs. We don't have to go through our EAPs to get help. Come to me. You can Google. Like, help. Whatever your thing is. And then hit that reset button and get it actually get it, but you have to want it. You have to recognize that you need it. I can tell somebody until I'm blue in the face, you need help. You need help. You need help until they see that they need help. I can't, I can't want it more than you. What about and that all person it is that's, is a reset button. What about that person that's so in the dark place, in the depression, in that they don't even have the energy to ask for help? Unfortunately, for the person that doesn't have the energy to ask for help, unless someone else near and dear to them sees those signs, because we all go through those trainings, especially as first responders, we go through the suicide awareness and prevention. Some of us are the peer support coaches and, you know, the wellness teachers and trainers that are going through these types of feelings, right? When you're the go-to person, who do you go to? Mm -hmm. So hopefully you are surrounded by peers that support you and notice a change in you that can come up to you and say, Hey, Conrad, like, and I'm noticing that you're, you've been isolating a little bit, been distancing yourself. You good. Like, do you need some help? Like, can I help you? I mean, if, if you have, if you're lucky enough to have a support system that notices a change in you, you're, if you don't say anything, I, I, I wouldn't, how would I know? Right. We have a lot of those guys that, you know, just, or guys and gals that just look like they have everything squared away. Right. Like they're, they're the go-to person. They're at the top of their game, whatever the case may be. And next thing you know, we find out that they're dealing with X, Y, Z issues or, you know, suicide. Mm -hmm. And it's because they never, if I don't, I don't know what I don't know. So for that officer, that first responder that's there, that's just such in a dark place that you don't even have the energy. My hope is that there's someone that notices this in you. And offers a helping, honest hand. Otherwise, my only other thing is you can slide in my DMs. You can call the there's a, the one eight hundred cop line mm -hmm. number. Mm -hmm. There's 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 two one one. There's so many. There's suicide hotline. I would ask you have you have to want it. And so I if I'm on the other side of that, and I'm the one who sees someone. How important is it just to be direct and to go to them? Super important. Super important. Completely. Uh, I'm very good at addressing the elephant in the room now. And I think it's important to do that because when you ask somebody, hey, Conrad, are you having thoughts of suicide? It's like, whoa. You know, now it's like nobody like, who just, but it's an uncomfortable question. And I get that. But when you ask somebody that, it's like, no, it's like, look, man, I'm, I'm worried about you. Now it's like, okay, this person kind of, sees me. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and if you can't ask that question, ask me, I'll ask them. Mm -hmm. I will call somebody up. Mm -hmm. I don't need to know that person to ask them that. Right. I always tell people I'm not a clinician. I'm not a therapist. I'm unapologetically Beth Perez who've been through some things and I want to help because I know that it's lonely there. Suicide is lonely. Hating yourself is so exhausting and lonely. So being transparent, being very open, being very blunt. You know, I don't think for first responders, that's kind of, I think, the, the attitude. But I think for any human, it's, it's that. I don't want to tiptoe around asking you if you're depressed. I want to just ask, are you depressed? What, talk to me. I want to help you. You know, that, that raw, real conversation. I don't want it to sound scripted. So if you have someone that you know that you want to ask these questions to and maybe you can't do it, I don't mind being a part of that conversation and guiding 
but it needs to be just ripped that bandaid off. Let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. At what point we do you think to- it's important for someone who is at that place to perhaps go away to, to some place to, to get some deeper therapy or treatment or things like that? Well, I mean, what point do we, do we need to do that? Immediately. Yesterday, right now, <laughs> all the time. And I feel like this reset button to get help, you know, we don't have to wait until we're about to explode to get it. Ideally, we want to be proactive versus reactive as it pertains to our mental health. But as we know, we don't really ask for help until we absolutely positively get it or um, we need it or we're in trouble. And now we're kind of voluntold to have to go do something or else you're going to get fired. If it gets to that point, so be it. Ideally, we would start recognizing like, man, I'm not going to the gym as much. I'm starting to get a little angry. I think I need to talk to someone before it gets bad. Like I'm dealing with some stuff that I that I haven't dealt with. You know, it's never a wrong time to ask for help. It's never too early. It's never too late. Help is help. We're human. We're dealing with human emotions to traumatic events, and we need to get the help. The body is keeping the score. Whether you say you're doing fine, your body is telling you you're not. And people, if there is a support system, they can see it and they can feel it. And it's also, you know, we deal with people. If you want to deal with the community in a way where you're giving to them with the respect and all these things, we have to deal with self, right? We have to deal with self. What needs to happen in our agencies? I mean, most first responders, they want to be the best firefighter, the best cop, the best medic, the the best call taker. They want to be the best they can be, most people. Some people don't Mm -hmm. care, but most people want to be the best. What will it take for first responder agencies to help their members understand that the mental health side of things plays a huge role in being your best. I think your shirt says it best. Hmm. Have to end the stigma. Just end the stigma. We're human. Well, we have to human we have to humanize this entire approach. Right? If I go up to my Sarge and I'm like, oh Sarge, I'm feeling depressed. Oh, give me your gun, your badge, just spend it. Never mind. Like yeah. I'm I'll just not tell you instead. We need to normalize these conversations. How do we normalize it? How does that protocol look? So are my guns getting taken away? Am I not going to have my job anymore? Am I going to not get paid time off? Like all these things are my livelihood. And if I talk to you and tell you that I'm having a human emotion to a traumatic event and you punish me for it, Mm -hmm. guess what I'm not going to do anymore? Mm -hmm. But guess where it's going to show up? It's going to show up in uses of force. It's going to show up in DUIs. It's going to show up when I decide that I want to blow my head off or something. Divorce, all these things. So we need to normalize the conversations. We need to utilize our resources, me, also Shatterproof, which is a resource. There's a host of other resources out there. We need to stop working in silos. All of these, or everybody needs to come together, come up with a plan and work together, break the stigma and understand that we aren't robots and we're going to have bad days. And we need to also apply the peer support. I've seen it's really powerful. So establishing a peer support team, establishing a wellness, ideally what I would like, I know that for my department, we had a in-service where you would once a year get recertified in shooting, driving, all of those things. Mm-hmm. We need to have an in-service week for wellness, mm-hmm. just pure wellness, like mental health. You know, they train us on how to utilize all the tools on our tool belt, but they don't train us on how to utilize the most powerful tool that we house, which is our mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Give us a week. Do that in the academy. Do it at in-service. Do it as a refresher, even if it's just a one-day thing. Mm-hmm. And let's have that uncomfortable, uncomfortable conversation. Let's address that elephant. Mm-hmm. You know, we just got to plant seeds. However, it does have to come from the command. And unfortunately, we're not there yet. However, I will not stop. It's like someone once said, everything rises and falls on leadership. You know, and yeah, if too. the command staff is, isn't there, then it's likely not going to happen. But what if the rank and file decide, you know what, we want to do this. We want to be healthy. We want to be stronger mentally. We want to, we want to have these things. And I think sometimes maybe you need to start wrapping the mental health just in, in the health bucket, right? So having that week of as focus on our health, which includes our mental health, you know, I think maybe that takes a little bit of the sting, the bite out of the stigma. Uh, when you include that, you know, in physical fitness, because physical fitness 
plays a big role in our mental health. Absolutely. I know Absolutely. when I'm working out and I feel better. And and when I movement will enhance your overall mood. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, I want to say that because our command staff maybe there are some departments that are jumping on the wave and they are doing something about it. And mm -hmm. I'm happy to see that, yep. you know, we're, 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 we're there. We just got to keep <laughs> fighting. However, if your agency or your department isn't, that doesn't mean that you can't do something about it. Right. Let's say that I work for a department that doesn't do anything for mental health. Why can't I create a group, a grief group mm -hmm. and tell some of the guys and gals, yo, let's meet up every Thursday at my house. Let's talk about some stuff. Sure. Zoom me in if you want me to zoom. Mm -hmm. We don't have, I don't have to wait for X, Y, Z, B person to get help. I don't have to wait for nobody to get help. Because we're all responsible for, for ourselves, right? That That's it. I can't want it more than you. I can come up with excuses as to why I won't get help all day, Conrad. Mm -hmm. I can come up with excuses all day. No, not today because of X, Y, Z. Mm -hmm. No, not today. Bev don't really want it then. Because mm -hmm. if Bev really want it, you're not going to make an excuse for something you really want. You're going to go and get what you want. Mm-hmm. But you have to want it. I can't want it more than you. We don't have to wait for command staffs. We don't have to wait for changes to be made in, in verbiage of whatever plans and trainings. We don't have to wait for that stuff or nobody to get help. Mm -hmm. You want help. You can be the help. Make the help. Ask me to come help you be the help. Mm -hmm. You know, but we can do this. I am 100% on board. That is all. That is my life's purpose. Mm -hmm. You know, so, but you did say, yes, including it with health, including it in some of the trainings. I know here in Broward County, I am part of the CIT training, the crisis intervention training. These officers have to go, every Broward County officer has to go through a training to learn how to deal with individuals that have mental health disabilities or are dealing with being on the spectrum or whatever the case may be. So for a week, they're being taught on how to deal with individuals with mental health or whatever else. I come in on the last day to teach them how to deal with themselves. And all I do is plant that seed. I'm like, I know you guys have been working all week on how to approach someone with autism or how to approach someone that's dealing with PTSD. I'm here to tell you how to deal with you. Mm. And I do that every time. I do that every time. I just did it last week. And I'm going to do it again next month. And I'm going to do it every time. So even just incorporating in little trainings like, like this, mm -hmm. like you said, right? Just throwing it in there. You never know who you're touching by just planting that seed. That's all I can do. All I can do is plant seeds and tell you that I am of service. Mm -hmm. Whether you want to, I can't make you drink. I can't make you drink that water. Yeah. Well, it starts with every individual. It starts with themselves. That's it. And that's a, I it's think a personal journey, you know? And so if someone, if, if an individual is out there and they're struggling and they just want to talk to someone, how can they get a hold of you? What's the best way to, to, to contact you? Yes. I'm not a difficult person to get in contact with. I always say, um, please visit our website at www.shieldus.app. Also, you can follow us on Instagram, which is at shieldus.app. And I'm also my personal page, which is on Instagram at underscore bevy bev. You can just jump in there, send me a DM. They can reach out to you and you can reach out to me. Whatever it is that we have to do, but please reach out to me. I'm not a difficult person to get in contact with, and I always respond. Even if you want to create something in your respective units, even if it's just for your unit. You know, there are some specialty units, right? Let's say you're part of the gang unit, and it's it's you and it's six other officers or whomever, and you guys want to do something for wellness. Just for yourself, let's do it. Mm -hmm. There's There's nothing has to stop you from getting help. The only thing stopping you from getting help at the end of the day really is, is your own demons. It's you. Mm -hmm. Well, Bev, thank you so much for sharing your story and for, uh, for getting, uh, getting through that difficult time and using that as a catalyst to what you're doing now. So, uh, it's, uh, it's great to see that, that happening. And so one final question, when are you going surfing next? Oh, I always go surfing. <laughs> yeah, we have to wait for like when the, the season gets a little stronger here because it's Deerfield Beach, Florida. However, they get some good little waves here and there. Yeah, I did want to say, mm -hmm. I did want to say for individuals that are also seeking, I am currently, I facilitate groups at Shatterproof, which is a rehabilitation program for first responders. And I have literally put my name on this 
program and we have partnered together, Shield Us and Shatterproof, because it is an actual first responder program. Everyone there is a first responder. Everyone there is vulnerable and non-judgmental, and it's a beautiful thing. And I facilitate the coping skills, the mental fitness. I do a motivation Monday, a forgiveness Friday. Mm-hmm. So um, while the term rehab, there's a stigma with that. What I like to call it is a reset button. Mm-hmm. And they're here for 30 days from all over the U.S. and abroad to reset and you know get back out there doing the great work that we're doing. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure we put all those links in the show notes and the people can access them right from the podcast and right from the YouTube channel. So Bev, thanks you so much for coming on the program thank today. You. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Conrad. Bev, thank you for joining us today on the program. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for the work that you're doing. I really appreciate that. And I wish, wish you the most and all the success in the world as we together work to break down the stigma of asking for help and to break down that stigma of of mental health that has impacted so many people around the world and especially first responders. And thank you for watching and listening to the show today. Please consider subscribing, whether you watch on YouTube or listen on Apple Podcasts or other podcast platforms, hit the subscribe button and give us a review. We'd really appreciate that. Also, if you could make a donation toward our film project, We're working hard to complete the film. We're almost there about getting the production done. Then we go into post-production, into editing, and we'll need to continue support for that to help us uh, get it to the end zone. And we do look forward to releasing the film later this year. Uh, If our funding comes in and everything goes well, we'll be able to release the film later this year. Visit our website, ptsd911movie.com for more information. Thanks again for watching. Thanks for joining us today. I'll talk to you again next time on the PTSD 911 Presents podcast. Be well.